Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of SEPAD Pod, the sectarianism proxies and desectarianization project based at Lancaster University and funded by Carnegie Corporation. Today, I'm joined by someone who's done a, a great deal of really important work understanding one of the more complex set of, of issues, problems, and conflicts in the Middle East today. Peter Salisbury is Senior Consulting Fellow at, uh, at Chatham House in the Middle East and North Africa program, and also Consulting Senior Analyst at the International Crisis Group. And I'm sure you, you've all seen his his work on Twitter, on uh, on the internet, in terms of the, the huge number of reports that he's done looking at Yemen and, and everything that's related to that 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 myriad set of, of conflicts and issues. Peter, thank you so much for joining us. It's an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thank you for having me. It's, it's wonderful to, to talk to you today and to, to get a bit of insight into, into what's going on. So can you tell us a little bit about how you ended up uh, working for Chatham House and International Crisis Group and focusing on Yemen, please? Because you have an interesting uh, undergraduate and master's degree for this type of work, I believe. Yeah, for sure. So my undergraduate was, um, because it's in Scotland, I did the, the four-year master's, so I've sure. got a, a master's degree in uh, English and Scottish literature, which doesn't, on the face of it, look like <laughs> it really feeds into the, the work that I do now. And in fact, when I first finished um, university, I actually lived in Spain for a couple of years, worked on my Spanish and um, right. worked in a, a bar. So it wasn't always <laughs> apparent that this was going to be the career path. Sure. Um, what, what happened was a couple of years of working in Spain. Um, I thought I was going to try and write fiction. That definitely didn't, didn't work out. Um, I came back to the UK. I'd always had a, an interest in journalism and became increasingly convinced that I wanted to write nonfiction about the real world right. um, rather than making stuff up. Um, <laughs> uh, so I did a, a short course in, in journalism. And the first job that I got out of um, J school um, because I spoke Spanish and, and German was as a financial journalist reporting on commodity markets. Right, that okay. job eventually took me to Dubai where I became the energy editor of the Middle East Economic Digest. Yeah. Um, but that job also involved reporting on the politics and economics of various different countries, including Yemen. I went to Yemen for the first time in 2009, having written about it a little bit for Mead, um, and just fell in love with the country. And it was, frankly, a lot more interesting than writing about oil, gas and, and petrochemicals in, in the Gulf. Um, sure, yeah. And initially did a lot of stuff on the Yemeni economy. And increasingly, it's impossible in Yemen to do things about the economy without talking about the political economy. Did a career break in 2010, went to SOAS and did a master's in international politics, but sort of a lot of stuff on political economy as well. And then after that, ended up doing a, a bunch of freelance work as both a journalist. So I've written for The Economist, The Financial Times, The Guardians, done some work for Reuters. Reuters, um, but also ended up working with Ginny Hill, who is um, the person who's probably sort of my mentor in the, the think tank and, and research world. She was running the Yemen program at Chatham House. Yeah. Um, and more and more, the work I did was this sort of in-depth political economy, really quite granular stuff, first with Ginny. And then when she moved on, I kind of took on the, the Chatham House Yemen mantle. Um, and that somehow accounts for the, the, the past eight years. 
Wow, it's uh, yeah, it's quite a journey. So before going into into detail about the the more recent stuff, I have to ask: Is there any of the uh, the early fiction still available? Is it is it still there? Does it exist? No, there's a, a broken laptop somewhere oh in my possession. Um, which has um, an early draft of a very bad novel that I'm absolutely delighted we'll never see the, the light of day. I think Fiction and I uh, had a, a very healthy divorce a long time ago. Well, that, that's a shame. I think it would have been quite interesting to see uh, to see what was coming out of your mind at that point because um, I've, I've certainly read read probably... 90% of what you've done in the past few years and and it's it's fascinating it's it's really important stuff that you're doing um somewhat somewhat diverted from the the sort of the economic side of things but I can see how how it all all feeds together I mean, what is it that that really piqued your interest about about Yemen in particular you know if you speak to the Yemen crowd the Yemen community I think most people go there and it's first sort of a very emotional, instinctive thing. Um, you just fall in love with the country a little bit. Yeah. And for all the the images that people see of Yemen and the, the reputation it has as this chaotic, warlike place, I mean, there's nowhere friendlier. Um, it's a very alien place for uh, a Westerner when you, you first go there. It's very much its, its own little little worlds but at one and the same time incredibly friendly incredibly welcoming as a journalist very accessible you could end up meeting really senior people really quickly mainly by chewing gat um and then um also sort of the community of people who work on the political and the economic piece tend to be quite friendly and open and happy that other people are are coming in to to do work on it so i think it, it sort of the stars aligned Um, I was probably always more interested in places that were a bit more, um, my old boss used to say, windswept and interesting, (laughs) rather than sort of the pure financial journalism route. And it sort of allowed me to take an interest in in things. And then, yeah, just sort of fell in love with the country, its its people, and and ended up living there for a couple of years as well. Um, So, yeah, that's it. It's it's quite an interesting story, and it's it's similar to to a number of people that I've spoken to who who had similar experiences in in Yemen and falling in love very quickly with the place. So I think, yeah, there's a there's a common theme. So for for people who've not really had the uh, the pleasure, I say pleasure, and I say that in terms of the style of writing rather than the content of of reading your work. How would you best describe what's happening in Yemen at present? Well, that's a that's a good question, and I'm trying to think of the way of answering that um, in as few words as, as possible. Sure. Um, I mean, you've got multiple things going on. I think the the first thing um, really is sort of this incomplete state formation. Um, so Yemen, although sort of it was always seen as a, an entity known as Yemen, was a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Um, you obviously had two different countries until 1990, North Yemen and, and South Yemen. But even then, inside North Yemen and, and South Yemen, um, not everyone was in agreement that these were yeah. actually sort of individual entities and should be run centrally. Um, and from the, the early to mid-2000s onwards, sort of the cracks in the edifice of the idea 
of a Yemeni state really started to show in the north of the country, the south of the country, the center of the country, for lots of different reasons. And a lot of my work has been about the the political economy side of things, the patronage networks, the, the diversion of what little revenues the state was earning to a very small elite through a, a number of different um, practices from corruption and, and smuggling to sort of the awarding of trade licenses. Yeah. Um, but what you end up with is a small elite in the capital city who've enriched them themselves while the rest of the country becomes, after a bit of a bump in the 1990s, progressively poorer, where young, educated people don't really feel like there's a future for them um, and where the elite itself is recognising that the, the pie they've been sharing between themselves is going to shrink at some point and that someone needs to come out on on top and, and that sort of internal rivalry. And all of that kind of comes together in 2011 during the Arab Spring uprisings when you first have this sort of youth-led um, pretty sort of decentralized protest movement, which is gradually subsumed by this elite rivalry between mainly sort of affiliates of Islam, Yemen's main Sunni Islamist party, and then the network around the now deceased um, former president Ali Abdullah Saleh, who'd kind of run the show for 33 years. Um, and Islam announced their, their defection effectively from their regime, their support for the protesters, and then Islam-backed military units and, and tribal groups and um, Salah-backed military units and tribal groups kind of really went at it, um, while the Salah guys also did a fairly um, good job of attacking the, the protesters in, in Taz and, and Sana'a in particular. And really that just catalyzed all this sort of local frustration with the central state as sort of services, justice, policing, all really fell to pieces. And then the bit that no one really saw coming in, in 2011 was this, this group in the north of the country, the Houthis, who fought this on-off insurrection against the, the Salah regime for about um, six years at, at that point, um, really managing to manipulate the whole situation um, uh, and, and get into the, the middle of things in, in Sana'a, first taking part in the protest movement, then being um, made part of the National Dialogue Conference, both of which are actually really good good things. This is a group um, that has sort of some, some valid grievances. Sure. But then um, basically linking up with Salah to take on sort of their mutual rivals in, in 2013 and 2014. And all of a sudden you see the Houthis who've been mainly up in, in Sada on the Saudi border up to this point, suddenly just burning all the way through to the capital city, taking over Sana'a and then moving out across the country alongside Salah, Salah loyalists. And no one really saw that, that coming. Um, but that was kind of Salah's, um, raison d'etre really he was a divider and a conqueror and a, a pragmatist and he'd work with whoever he thought would serve his agenda right, um, yeah. but in this case he really didn't calculate on other regional players namely Saudi Arabia and latterly the UAE coming in to the war and, and supporting um, the, the groups that he and the Houthis were, were fighting against and I don't think he also reckoned on the Houthis actually gaining the upper hand in their alliance and ultimately killing him 
in, in December of, of 2017. Um, so now what you've got on the ground is all these different local groups, identity groups, um, who are anti-Houthi, um, kind of fighting back against the Houthis with varying degrees of support from the Hadi government, um, from the Saudis and from the, the Emiratis, um, fighting against increasingly sort of this, this unified structure of the Houthis who have less and less resources, but have proven themselves to be very, very durable. And then the, the story underneath all of this is this was a really, really poor country before the war, the poorest country in the Arab world. Um, and as this war has gone on and on and on, and most resources have been diverted towards fighting, and it's become more and more difficult to access the country. Trade has slowed down. The economy has collapsed. The poorest people in the country have, have reached the, the brink of starvation. So we're really in this place now where you need some kind of political settlement just to prevent big chunks of the country dipping into into full-on famine. But at the same time, the issues look on the face of it to be really intractable and no one really feels like they're losing yet. So we're not in this place where they feel like it's sufficient of a, a quote-unquote hurting stalemate sure. um, to push them in one direction or, or the other. So that's kind of not that short of an overview, but I hope it gives you a bit of a, a taste and flavour of things. Uh, yeah, it, it certainly does, and it's a particularly bleak and unpleasant taste and flavour. I mean, it, it's a pretty, a pretty devastating account of the past sort of 20, 30 years or so of, of politics in Yemen, I mm. guess. Um, there are so many questions that I could ask Peter, so just I'll, I'll try and limit the number of them because I'm conscious of, of time. But why did no one know? Why did Salah not see the, the Houthis coming? Why, why were we surprised by them in, in 2011? Um, in 2014. Oh, sorry, um, in 2014. Um, but I mean, we saw them yeah. becoming increasingly important from 2011 onwards. Mm. Yeah. That's a really hard question to answer. And the reason that I find it hard to answer is kind of, um, I think I, I have to hold my hands up and say that I didn't see the Houthis uh, as being as much of a threat as they, they turned out to be in 2012, 2013. And certainly there were people in Yemen sounding the, the alarm bell and saying this could, these guys could be really serious, but they were very much seen as this kind of provincial militia. Yeah. Um, and I think there was also an element there of, in 2014, when they arrived on the outskirts of Sana'a, the way it had been set up by Saleh and others was this idea that there was going to be a big fight for control of the city between Isla, who still sort of had a large number of armed groups who, who were their affiliates, their loyalists, um, and the Houthis. I think that both Saleh and, to an extent, the the people around um, Hadi, who became president in, in 2012, thought that they could manipulate that situation uh, and really push things in this direction of, well, there's this fight between the, these groups, but we'll, we'll save the capital and, and save the country. Right. But what happened was um, the Islahis kept asking um, the president to announce war with the Houthis in order to sort of protect the, the Republic, quote-unquote. Had he refused to and decided to do a deal with with the Houthis, um, and senior people within Islam, in particular Ali Mohsen al-Ahmar, 
um, and, and others told the people from the military, from the interior ministry, from sort of like various militias who'd gathered in and around Sana'a, okay, a game's being played here, let's, let's live and fight another day. And when they did that, I mean, it, it just handed control of Sana'a to the Houthis. So I think what you're looking at is a lot of different people miscalculating and, and expecting a, a certain outcome and then being quite surprised when things went went the other way. Um, yeah. But for all the talk of the importance of it, Iran in Yemen, in that moment, I keep coming back to, you know, Salah opened the door for the Houthis to, to Sana'a um, and was probably quite surprised when they managed to sort of stroll in. But at the same time, I, I wrote a piece for, I think, Business Week at the time, where a couple of weeks after the, the Houthis took over in in Sana'a, I just went around all these different checkpoints um, and, and sort of staging posts um, where you had guys who were purportedly Houthis. They're wearing sort of normal Yemeni tribal dress. They've got yeah. the Sarka, this um, Houthi slogan, the famous Death to America slogan on stickers on their rifles. Yeah. And you'd say, how long have you been with the Houthis? And they're like, oh, you know, about a month um, right. And it turned out they were from Sana'a, that they'd been with the GPC, with Salah's sure. um, party forever. And that basically, sort of someone had told them, you're Houthis now. Right. That's how you're going to gonna sell things. And they'd done that. Um, so again, sort of every time you dug under sort of the superficial version and narrative of what was going on, there was this very different game at play. So you say that, obviously, we know um, Salah opened the gates and helped mm. the Houthis get get into Sana'a, but you say that he was he was surprised at what they achieved. Why why was that, do you think? Um, I mean, th- this is my take. Sure, of course. Um, I, I haven't had Salah tell me that on, on the record. Now, <laughs> yeah. to be, I have to be clear there. Um, I, I do think that there was an expectation that you could set up this fight for the capital between Isla, who, who are often described fairly erroneously as the, the Yemeni Muslim Brotherhood. And you've got to think back to 2013, 2014, when you had this sort of like really strong counter-revolutionary movement, and not just counter-revolutionary, but very anti-Muslim Brotherhood, political Islamist, especially among the Gulf states. Yeah. And Saleh had effectively lost the support of the Gulf states in 2011. Um, And my speculation and my thinking at the time was that this was a way to present sort of the idea that that the Brotherhood and the Houthis were engaging in sectarian warfare and that sort of more secular, sensible people needed to to step in. And there was a a lot of talk around the time of all of this of... um, Salah's son, Ahmed Ali, being named defense minister. And when I say talk, I don't just mean among Yemenis, but among senior Western diplomats, as this is the way that we can we can solve the problem. Right. So the game at that point really was getting the Salah people, particularly his son, back into sort of senior positions and making the case that the only people who could keep a lid on all this nasty sectarian strife um, was Wasala, which had really been his message for many, many years before that. So kind of reselling and, and reapplying for the job, but maybe in more of a supporting role in, in the past. But I, I can tell you that sort of while these guys popped up on a checkpoints across the city, my contacts at the time 
definitely had this expectation there would be a much bigger fight um, and that things would go go very differently um, in, in September 2014. Uh, so it, it seems to me that moving slightly away from from the conflict, from the civil war and from the, the sort of the sectarian, the, the tribal, it seems to me that there's a broader sort of failure of, of politics itself, sort of the failure of the, the Yemeni state to provide for, for its people. Is that a, a fair assumption, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you had a country which was making not that much money, but you know, a few billion a year from oil exports, um, and just horribly mismanaged that that resource. So the money from the oil really went into covering the cost of massive food imports, underwriting subsidies for cheap fuel in the country, and then paying off this patronage system that had managed to keep a lid on things and stop sort of all the different people who were brought in under the tent of the, the Salah regime from deciding that they didn't like each other or didn't like Salah very yeah. much. And Salah, it's important to remember, came in after a series of assassinations of Yemeni presidents. And famously, I think the the main CIA operative in, in the region wrote back home when he became president and said, I'd give him a couple of months or, or something like that. Hmm. Um, yeah. So you've got this patronage system, and this happens everywhere. It, the, the literature reflects it really well. Sort of the patronage system 33 years earlier was relatively unsophisticated and was about doling out a limited amount of resources. And as time had passed, it had become much more complex, much more sophisticated, but it demanded constant growth in, in resources. And what that meant was less and less resource was going to doing things like building roads, providing electricity, justice, policing, so on and so forth. And then all the government institutions became this quiet political back battleground between the different factions, political factions in, in Sana'a. Um, and everything development-related ground to a halt along with, with the, the economy. So Yemen's service economy actually grew quite a lot in the 2000s. And some people were enriched, but those benefits weren't distributed to the wider population, and the income from oil and gas exports wasn't recycled into the, the wider economy. And then you've got on top of that this, this problem, which I'm sure you see in a, a lot of places, which is a capital flight, yeah. where Yemen deregulated its banking sector in the late 1990s. That meant a lot of these sort of elite players could make a lot of money in Yemen, and then take the money they were making and rather than reinvest it in the country, move it offshore. And given the shaky political situation, that became more and more attractive. So even where sort of corruption sometimes can actually be somewhat beneficial as long as people have to spend the money in a closed economy. But when that money can, can fly and people are, are worried that their position is not secure, you often see this, this issue. Um, and I'm trying to remember the exact figure, but it was something like for every dollar brought into the country in aid, there was about $2 of, of capital flight. Wow. And I guess in, in such economic struggle and with, with such serious political issues, that creates the possibility on the, the conditions that will allow for external actors to get more and more involved. So can you say a little something about the, the involvement of the Saudis, of the Iranians and... And the Emiratis, because we know that, that the Emiratis are, are getting more and more involved with, with southern groups, uh, Al-Hirak and the Southern Transitional Council, for example. 
Sure. Um, I mean, what's really interesting is that up till 2011, I'd say external intervention in, in Yemen, external interest in Yemen were relatively limited. Yeah. Um, the Saudis had long been providers of, of patronage and, and money to various tribal leaders in the north of, of the country. And then there have been direct relations and, and funding for the state run by, by Saleh. Um, but in the run-up to 2011, you saw the two main players in those relationships, so Prince Nayef um, and Prince Sultan in Saudi Arabia, who both sort of between them held different bits of the Yemen file, um, becoming ill and, and tying. So when we got to 2011, um, Mohammed bin Nayef, the son of, of Nayef and, and later Crown Prince, um, was the person holding the Yemen file as the entire region kind of went to pieces. Um, and in 2011, they cut off a lot of funding for the, the various groups in, in Yemen and for, for Saleh him, himself, um, in part because of sort of fears that sort of they, they'd end up supporting the Muslim Brotherhood and in part because they wanted to have leverage over all these different groups and get them to sort things things out. Up till 2011... I'd argue that, I mean, the UAE had a presence in Yemen. Right. It had a relatively decent relationship with uh, the Salahs, particularly with Ahmed Ali, with the Salah's son. Um, the Salah family and, and their associates had a lot of business dealings in the UAE, but it was pretty light touch. There was some military support, some military training, but it wasn't a, a major thing. It was sort of not abnormal for the, the region. And then Iran, um, I wrote a paper in 20, I think January or February of 2015, which turned out to be well-timed entirely through through luck and coincidence on the role of Saudi Arabia and Iran. Yeah. And what was interesting was, I mean, looking at the, the Houthis, it's difficult to believe that they, they became quite as good as they, they did at things like strategic communication as much as things like sort of their, their ability to fight on, on the ground without some external support. But the story I was told again and again was the Iranians had taken a look at them early on and been interested, but the Houthis hadn't really cared much for the people the Iranians sent. Right. And later on, Hezbollah um, became sort of the lead, if you like, within sort of those wider networks for um, working with, with the Houthis and, and brought them to Lebanon and sent people in to do some training on, on military stuff, um, on, on the strategic communications piece, so on and so forth. But it was never a massive... Um, it, it was never a, a massive um, piece of, of funding or, or resource for, for the Houthis. And, and famously, there are these WikiLeaks cables of the U.S. Embassy in, I think, 2009 uh, or 2010, writing back back home and saying, Saleh keeps trying to sell the Houthis as sort of an Iranian proxy, and we just don't see it. Yeah. Um, fascinating when you, you look at it now. The Saudis even were a little bit skeptical and thought that Saleh was trying to, to game them yeah. by playing up fears of, of Iran. So in the run-up to 2011, the Saudis have been the big external player. Uh, but let's not forget here as well, sort of the Brits, the Americans and others 
who had become very focused on counterterrorism during the period of the war on terror and had become this alternative form of source of patronage, if you like, for the Salah regime as Salah tried to build out, build out military and security institutions that were entirely his own construction and fell under the control of his, his family members. And he made very smart use of that. And when you look at what happened in 2011, he'd been working to limit the funds for his rival Ali Mossen while trying to channel as much external and internal funding towards the Republican Guard led by his son Ahmed Ali, towards the National Security Bureau and the Central Security Forces run by um, his his um, his nephews. Um, so also this this element of we often forget that the the West definitely played a role in backing some of the people who were involved on quote unquote the other side. Um, in this war, and certainly the weapons, the training, the knowledge, um, and even the, the communications monitoring infrastructure in Sana'a that the Houthis have been using, part of that is is Western-funded and transferred. Right. So it's a, a really complex set of relationships that, that obviously go far beyond and far deeper than the, the conventional narratives that that we hear so often time and time again mm-hmm. that, that pits Saudi and Iran on different sides of a conflict in Yemen and yeah, that's incredibly simplistic and, and particularly damaging um, Peter, yeah. I'm conscious we are very warm, very, very close to going way over <laughs> we can, time. We can go a little bit longer, it's okay. Okay, so I have one last uh, one last question then, if I may, and this sure. is probably the, the the one that will require the longest answer, but um, it, and it's a bit of a speculative sure, one, right. but, but what comes next? Where do we go from here? So I think I, I wrote in the end of last year that Yemen was at an inflection point, and, and part of that was because I got so so bored of, of Yemen being supposedly on the brink when it clearly fell off the brink a long, <laughs> long time ago sure. in terms of the, the general population. But, but we're in this place where last December, the UN envoy, Martin Griffiths, managed to bring together the representatives of the two quote-unquote sides and Obviously, this is a war involving multiple factions and actually multiple conflicts when, when you really dig into it. Yeah. Um, but he brought together representatives of the Hadi government, which was sort of almost overthrown in September 2014 and then was properly overthrown in January of 2015 and has been backed by the Saudis and, and the Emiratis, um, although the UAE-Hadi relationship isn't, isn't the greatest. Um, and there are all these sub-conflicts, if, if you like, between the supposed allies on the, the Hadi, quote-unquote, side, yeah. um, which maybe we don't have time to, to go into, <laughs> but I absolutely encourage people to, to read some of the last couple uh, of Chatham House papers that really try and outline who exactly is on the ground and what they're doing. Um, but he managed to bring together representatives of the Hadi government and the Houthis, um, and got them to to agree to a limited deal on Hodeida, this port city um, on the, the Red Sea coast of, of Yemen. Um, for much of the previous year, UAE-backed forces have been pushing up, Yemeni forces had been pushing up the Red Sea coast towards Hodeida. And in, in November of 2018, they more or less encircled the, the city um, using masses of, of UAE air support. 
Um, and it looked like there was going to be this really big, nasty bit of urban warfare between the Houthis um, and sort of the coalition, Hadi government, whichever way you want to want to frame it. But really, between sort of Malika, the the Giants Brigade, this this UAE-backed and, and funded Yemeni force with with UAE support and and the Houthis, and that would have cut off a really vital lifeline to to Yemen. Um, something like 80% um, of all goods shipped into Yemen come by Hadeda. Um, 20, 30, 40% of all WFP food is kind of brought in and stored at just like one warehouse wow. there, which was cut off by the, the fighting. Um, so if the, the port had been taken out of commission, and particularly if it had been taken out of commission for a long time, the humanitarian situation would have just been vastly vastly worse. I think people were just waking up to just how bad that was getting, thanks in part to, to sort of Tyler Hicks from the New York Times, getting that, that photo, getting that image on the front page of the Times, and yeah. then um, Declan Walsh's reporting, although obviously others had reported on things, that felt like the, the breakthrough moment that a lot of us had been waiting for. Sure. Um, and what we landed up with in, in these talks in Sweden was an agreement to pause the fighting, to have a ceasefire in Hodeida governor, and then to demilitarize um, Hodeida ports and two small ports to the north of Hodeida called Rasisa and, and Salif, and uh, the city as well. Now, m- my take is if that deal can be implemented, and it hasn't yet, um, then the, the sort of low-hanging fruit of the conflict are more or less gone. The things that the Saudis and and UAE backing the Hadi government and other forces on the ground can do in a short space of time um, are very limited, I I would argue. There are maybe one or two other places where they can make some gains, but then we get to sort of a really nasty new phase of, of conflict, which is incredibly grinding and probably doesn't get you anywhere in any space of time. So the incentives in a post-Hodeida world, do shift. They change around uh, a little bit. Um, so my, my hope was that if this deal could be implemented slowly but surely, and it will take a while, that we then need see sort of everyone being forced into basically um, working out some kind of political settlement. Right. The, the problem there, though, is... At the moment, you've got these talks between the Hadi government and the Houthis. Um, they're the people who everyone agrees need to, to sign a deal to end the war, but that's only really one conflict among many. So my, my forecast for, for this year, the optimistic forecast <laughs> is okay. the Hadeda agreement doesn't fall to pieces completely. Yeah that there's this gradual inching towards implementation with lots and stops and starts. Um, and we see a shift towards a political process in which no one really wants to give up any any ground, but we do see sort of this slow but sure movement towards these talks. And then all this subsurface stuff that I've been talking about, all these smaller conflicts really bubble up to the surface as it looks like Isla or the Southern Transitional Council or various tribal groups um, or regional groups in, in Hadramaut, in Mahra, look like they're going to get disenfranchised. And we know from the literature that sort of 
people who aren't included in in talks often become spoilers, and a lot of the people not being talks, including the talks right now, are very heavily armed. Um, so something has to be done to prevent those from becoming sort of the Yemen War 2.0, almost. And even if you get to a political settlement, if you leave all of these people out and you try and constitute a new elite, um, and they do the same stuff all over again, and it looks like there's a real danger of that happening, then we end up again in sort of Yemen War 2.0, and that's the optimistic outcome. Right. So we move towards a political settlement, but as that political settlement moves further down the road, all these sort of subsurface issues bubble up, um, and you have to either deal with them or not deal with them at your peril. The worst-case scenario is that the Hodeida Agreement collapses. We do see a fight or further fighting in and around Hodeida. People decide, well, it's just not worth trying to, to do a deal. And we move into a much nastier phase even of, of the conflict, which is also a lot messier. We've had relatively clear front lines and zones of conflict for the last two, three, three years but if we move into this next phase, I think it's a lot more mixed up and complicated and also involves all these sort of subsurface um, issues. Um, so it's either really one quite complicated and difficult exercise in moving the country inch by inch towards a political settlement that won't make everyone happy um, and has many, many pitfalls, or not getting there and seeing sort of just sort of the firmament around which everything is built, um, sort of like the current status quo has been built, collapsing even further. And an option two, to me, is more frightening. And obviously yeah. there, are, there are people who have a much more optimistic take who think, well, if we go on and we take Hodeni militarily, then the Houthis really will be be done. But coming back to the Houthis, I mean, this is a group who started fighting as a very small group of guys halfway up a mountain in Sada in the north of the country in 2004 and now control a massive chunk of the country in 2019. And it's very difficult to convince the fighters in that group in particular that they're actually losing because sort of on a, a global level, across the sweep of time that they've been in operation. That just doesn't seem to be true to them. Yeah, so I guess we all must wish Martin Griffiths a, uh, a, a huge pile of luck and good fortune yeah. and patience and, uh, well, everything else, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. This isn't going to happen overnight. Yeah. And once you get through, once you jump over one hurdle, there are another thousand hurdles in, in front of you. This isn't an easy task, it isn't a simple task, and it certainly isn't something that's going to yield major results in a, a short space of time. Sure. Well, Peter, thank you so much for, for giving us your time and, and talking through all these different issues and conflicts in such a, such a well, fascinating, compelling and easily digestible way. It's been really fascinating just hearing you talk. So thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Really enjoyed it. It's been a pleasure. So until the next time, thank you very much. Thank you, Simon.